This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Travel Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Tom Sparico from BNM Ventures. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Notel and to Mouth Media for, uh, for having me here tonight. Uh, what I love about the travel industry, I've been in this crazy industry since 1996, and I got there largely by accident. So over the last 20-some-odd years, I've, I've seen a lot and experienced a lot. I think the thing that I love the most about this industry is how dynamic it is. Uh, it changes very quickly. It's never the same thing, and it's always an adventure figuring out what's going to come next and how to solve the problems that we as individuals in the industry and the industry as a whole face. Hi, I'm Jillian Morris, the founder and CEO of Hitlist. It's an app that alerts you when there are cheap flights to places you want to go. And what I love about the travel industry is how much money there is in it. I'm not talking about necessarily money for me uh, in particular, though I do believe you can do well by doing good. I just think, you know, travel, the third largest remitter of payments in the world after Visa and MasterCard is IATA, the International Air Transport Association price line, or booking holdings now, the, is the third largest e-commerce company in the world after Amazon and Alibaba. And so when you have that much money floating around, there's a lot uh, of dynamism, as Tom said, and there are a lot of opportunities to move the needle just in the way, you know, the entire system of commerce works in the world. This is Travel Is Your Business covering the intersection of technology and business in the travel industry. Thank you. We're here with Mouth Media Live and Travel is Your Business. Uh, I'm your host, John Matson, the Managing Director for Voyager HQ. I'm really excited to have you guys all here with us today. Um, and I'd like to kick us off today and, and maybe go through with some introductions. So uh, my co-host... Hi, um, I'm Bess Chapman, and I'm the operating principal at JetBlue Technology Ventures, the venture capital arm of JetBlue Airways. I'm Jillian Morris, the founder and CEO of Hitlist, an app that alerts you when there are cheap flights to places you want to go on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Tom Sparico. I'm the managing partner of BNM Ventures. We are a seed stage investment firm uh, with a heavy concentration in travel and hospitality. And I am Brandon McKenzie, founder and COO of Metro Butler. We are a short-term rental management company, uh, front desk of Airbnb, Booking.com, VRBO, and the rest, if you will. Awesome. Hey, great job, everyone. Now we're done. Just give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> All right, so I'd, I'd like to get right into it. Um, apparently, right now, it's, it's one of the best times in history for raising capital in the travel industry. Um, but I find that a lot of the founders in the Voyager community, especially at early stages, are still finding trouble raising that capital. So based on your perspective and your experiences over the last year or so, um, what do you think the fundraising landscape in the travel industry really looks like? Uh, well, I mean... I haven't gone out to raise in the last year, so I'm a little less familiar, but certainly seeing my peers who are other founders in the travel space, um, it always feels like someone else is getting all the money, you know? Um, and I still think travel continues to be this area where a lot of investors have been burned, in particular consumer-facing travel, still one of the harder categories. I think it's basically in the less list of 
investors dreaded categories. It's sort of like dating apps and travel. They just hate them. Um, and so the, you, you get a lot of negative reactions. There are some people who just categorically won't do it. But then sometimes you find, you know, the ones that actually love it. So like, like Tom, so tell us why you do. Sure. I, you know, uh, again, to, to Jillian's earlier point, the travel industry is, is, is one of the biggest and there's no shortage of opportunities. I think that, by definition, gives um, entrepreneurs in the space a significant opportunity to do interesting things and raise money to, to support those endeavors. The fundraising capital right now, the, uh, the, the fundraising environment right now in general, is one of the best we've ever seen in this country. Because there is so much money uh, on the sidelines that is looking for interesting opportunities to invest. I think where entrepreneurs in general, and especially in the travel industry, run into challenges tend to be either not understanding where to find that capital or um, basically going to capital sources that are not necessarily aligned with the stage of their business. I mean, beyond that, businesses that have challenges associated with them will have a greater difficulty raising money in general. Um, but that said, a lot of what we've seen are you know, opportunities that seek out institutional capital either before they're ready or opportunities that are seeking out institutional capital where that institutional capital is investing at a later stage and not an earlier stage. And that rejection over time can feel really overwhelming and like the environment's not supportive of what they're doing. And I'd be really interested to hear where you think the New York environment there lends itself versus the, out in San Francisco, if it's an earlier or a later stage issue or a more risk-averse or less risk-averse factor there. Sure. And this has been discussed quite a bit, I think, in the venture ecosystem. New York has, has made tremendous strides in supporting the early stage ecosystem, but I still think that you have a slightly different investor profile that's based in New York than, than is based in the Valley. Um, you know, sp specific to travel, and this will tie into the two markets, um, there are people from the industry who are angel investors for businesses in the industry. And quite candidly, that's probably an entrepreneur in the travel space's best first stop is to go to the people who are willing to write the twenty-five dollars or $50,000 checks, not because they don't have the capital resources to go bigger, but because that's the appropriate check size at that juncture, and get people who are from the industry to engage in their business as early as possible that will greatly increase the likelihood of success. Now, the question is, where are those people? I think there is a good concentration of those people in both major hubs, New York and San Francisco. But with the travel industry, they're also located in a lot of other cities um, where some of the large incumbent travel technology players specifically are based. Um, I think, you know, in general, to answer the question specifically, I think for early, early stage stuff, San Francisco is still a more viable market for raising capital than New York is, uh, because I think the the San Francisco or the Valley-based investor is going to be more focused on the idea and the potential of the idea rather than the traction for the business at that particular juncture, which is where I think New York leans typically. I, I also think it's a little bit uh, sector dependent. So if you are consumer facing, the environment tends to be much better in San Francisco. If you're B2B, it might actually be better in New York, especially if you're doing anything on the media side. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. And what do you think drives that? 
simply where the businesses are and where the expertise are, uh, where the expertise lies. If I'm not mistaken, Brandon, you you raised capital early on in New York, correct? So what did that experience look like for you? in a word, nightmarish. <laughs> uh, I think Tom's point is well taken. It's knowing where to look, the right people to talk to. Uh, and it's inevitably a longer process than I think anyone gives it credit for. You know, if you say, look, we're looking to close this round within 60 days, good luck. That That's, you know, anyone who ever says that is lying to you. And um, I usually find that the decks end up saying, like, this is when we're going to raise. It's 60 days from now, and then we're going to raise again in another 60 days, and then we're finally in that second cycle and they're like we're half committed the first time <laughs> which, which by the way yeah. as a piece of advice don't do that <laughs> it, it, it can it can be it can be yeah. very damaging to your raise process mm-hmm. because if you don't meet those dates it looks like you're failing instead of succeeding always demonstrate traction but don't commit yourself to an artificial date good piece of advice <laughs> on that on that thought we you know we, we're talking about b2c and b2b and those are you know um most people would say that B2C is kind of the graveyard, right? Um, um, but Hitless has had a great amount of traction, at least. Um, you know, you've, you've been featured in the App Store and, and all these other places um, and seen consumer adoption. Um, what do you guys think on both a B2B and a B2C level? And maybe uh, because you've started a B2C company more, you could um, shed some light on this. But what are the key metrics that, that founders should be looking for and even investors should be looking for? Because... Another component of this is that there are a lot of investors who won't touch travel because they actually don't know what they should be looking for. So maybe you guys could shed us some light on that. Sure. Well, I think this was one of the interesting things I also saw in the fundraising difference between New York and San Francisco, where in New York, you know, people didn't know what metrics to look for. And in lieu of uh, sort of having any sort of sophisticated feedback, they would just basically say, come back to us when you've figured everything out. It's like, (laughs) that's not really the point of venture capital, is it? Um, But uh, in San Francisco, there were a lot more people, again, on the consumer side who would be able to say, okay, well, what What's your DAU over MAU? And is that even important for your particular uh, product? Um, Could you spell out that acronym for everyone? Um, uh, Daily active users over monthly active users, which is, uh, it's a proxy for engagement. So how many people are coming back to your app uh, frequently on a daily basis? Um, And for a consumer-facing app, the sort of, industry standard of excellence would be about 33%. Um, if you have a third of your monthly active users coming back all that time. Um, but you know, that's going to be different for every different product. And for hit list where we make our money is when you buy a ticket and we get an affiliate commission. Um, and so in that sense, the metric that we found most important was our quarterly active user numbers, because that's about the pace at which our users are buying a ticket. Now, someone who looked at us as an unsophisticated investor might say, oh, well, your DAU over MAU is, is you know, really terrible. It's like 7%. But it was like, okay, but I'm not a media company. People think all consumer companies are media companies, and you just need the daily active, you know, the engaged daily active users who they're there, and you can sell them ads and monetize that way. But that's not how Hitlist makes its money. So, um, you know... Again, it just comes down to a depth of people who have seen comps in the market. And uh, in New York, other than Foursquare, there haven't been a lot of sort of social consumer apps. And um, 
I don't know, you, you feel like it looks like you have something to say this. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm really interested because I think that's absolutely the sticking point with travel is that B2C can be really hard but just because of what you said, the stickiness. So how do you drive stickiness when the average customer only travels two and a half times a year? One of those is probably a road trip. So people aren't coming back to your app every day. Um, how do you engage users? I mean, I, I can speak to Hitless case individually, and, and we are not necessarily focusing on getting people in daily. Like I said, we just want them to remember us when they're ready to take a trip. And so we created this Chrome extension called WanderTab that we've seen a lot of people install, and it alerts you. Sorry, every time you open a new tab on your browser, it shows you a beautiful picture and how much it costs to get there. And we found that you know that gets over 3 million views a month. It's We've never done any marketing for it. And that's a really great way that we manage to stick in users' minds. And we also send email alerts, and people... You know, when they download Hitlist and set up an alert, they're explicitly asking you to market to them. Um, and so our open rates on our emails are very high compared to most email marketing. And so we get people coming back in that way. And again, we're funneling them towards a much higher value activity, which is planning a trip than necessarily just sort of clicking around and looking at pictures. So this just sparked something in my head. When I heard you say DAU over MAU, and I mean no offense by this, but I saw a lot of vacant stairs. No offense, guys. <laughs> um, so I'm very curious. That's obviously a very refined, well put together pitch, even if not a pitch. And I'm very curious, Tom, to turn to you, if somebody comes into your office and we were talking a little bit earlier about people who are at an earlier stage or maybe shouldn't be raising institutional capital yet, they're not going to speak like that. They're not going to be as polished as Jillian. So if somebody comes into your office or, you know, gets to that pre-your-office level, what do you look for? It's a, it's a great question, and, and, and I agree with you. For us, we're a little bit contrarian in this respect. So where we play aggressively is kind of pre-seed and seed. And for us, it's not necessarily metric-driven. It's more – I always like to say that, that pre-seed and seed is more art than it is science. Um, the first thing we look for – is have has the founder founders defined the KPIs that help them understand where the business is, and are there metrics around product market fit? Um, is there at least a baseline unit economic model that serves as a starting point to say we think there's a business here? Here's why, and here's what we're going to do to start to move the needle on some of those baseline metrics. Now, in some cases, that requires us to work with them to define those KPIs. Um, but for us, what we're really striving to do, you know, we have two guiding principles being adventures, work on things that interest you with people you like. Sounds grossly oversimplified, but that is kind of how we look at things in the world. Um, if we like the people and we like the business, then we're going to work with them to help them get through that pre-seed or seed stage and prepare them for interacting with the larger institutional investors who are going to want to take a more metric-driven, data-justifiable approach. Um, I think also that you know the metric question really varies wildly by sector, by subsector, even within B2C and B2B. Mm -hmm. um, what Jillian may be looking at her business, and I agree, Jillian 
knows her business and knows the data probably better than most founders do, um, is going to be different than what, say, someone in the B2B enterprise space is, is looking at. Um, and so to, to try and put it into a perfect framework or a perfect box is difficult to do. Um, and the earlier you go, the less that actually makes sense as an approach, in my opinion. That's great. It's funny. I just want to point out that that was such a New York investor way of framing things. It's like, oh, do they have the KPIs? They're going to focus on all this stuff. Whereas in San Francisco, so many times it's just like, how big is the idea? That's, <laughs> That's a completely, completely fair point. Yep. Well, this is a great point. We should um, uh, take a break here, but coming up, we'll hear from Tom and Jillian on uh, building meaningful relationships with investors and founders, uh, along with uh, what the trends are in VC and travel. And John will sing us a song. <laughs> <laughs> Are you interested in conversations about the crossroads of business and innovation? What if those conversations were about the largest industry in the U.S.? Hi, I'm Tom Kutzman. If you answered yes to both of those questions, then it's about time you check out Real Estate Is Your Business on the Mouth Media Network. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Our episodes are available on iTunes and Google Play and online at travelisyourbusiness.com. Plus, there are a lot more great shows on Mouth Media Network. Take a trip to mouthmedianetwork.com to enjoy them all. And remember, we love fan mail. Drop us a note to say hi, suggest a guest, or if you'd like to become a sponsor on the show, email us at travelbizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Welcome back to Mouth Media Live and Travel is Your Business. Uh, we're live at Experience by Notel. Uh, we're here with uh, Tom and Jillian. And I'd like to dive right into what we had been kind of talking about, which was developing meaningful relationships, but at the same time, developing strategic relationships that make sense for the business. That could mean both from the side of the investor or the founder. So that's a super broad question, but I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on it. Sure. I, we, we actually spend a lot of time focusing on this at BNM Ventures. Um, for us, uh, like I said, two guiding principles work on things that interest us with people we like. Um, understanding who the founders are, actually who the, who the entire team is at a company before we make an investment is of paramount importance, um, not only from a due diligence standpoint, but really more importantly, um, you know, we're going to be in the trenches with these people. And seed stage and pre-seed, things don't go well all the time. As a matter of fact, they don't go well most of the time. Um, and so we have to be there. Uh, side by side with our founders and their teams to help them work through the issues. And so when we're going through the process, we spend a lot of time, not a series of like one hour meetings that you might typically see, but we actually have a process where we spend one to three full days in a room with the founders 
working through their business and understanding if there is a chemistry between us and them before we move forward. And when we move forward, and I've tried to do this, and you know, Chris will tell you, I try to invest a significant amount of time in you know developing strong personal relationships with those founders. I think almost every single one of our CEOs has, has come to my house. I know every single one of our CEOs has met my wife. Um, she's usually the, uh, the 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 final arbiter of our <laughs> <the laughs> investment decisions. Um, but I think it's important, right? Because when stuff goes wrong, you can't have an adversarial relationship, and it will go wrong. Um, and they need to feel like they can trust you and lean on you. In order to get there, though, you have to set a standard of what we call brutal honesty delivered with passion and empathy. I've been in your shoes. I know what this is like, but that doesn't mean I'm going to sugarcoat what you need to hear so that we can work through this problem together. And so we also invest a lot of time in the beginning in setting a common language that allows us to communicate effectively and honestly with each other. Uh, and that's proven to, to work very well. So, uh, yeah, what is it? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, other than grit and thick skin – when you look at a founder and you say, I'm investing in you as much as I am the company, what are you looking for? Asking uh, for a friend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, obviously, we're looking for, for all the things everyone's going to say. We're looking for someone, you know, people who are intelligent, who are driven, um, people who have perseverance. Uh, Bess and I were talking about uh, one of our portfolio CEOs who, who she knows who, um, you know, has been at a, an airline innovation now for, for four years and, you know, dealt with a lot of no's and the extraordinarily long sales cycle of selling airlines where, where most people would have given up on that journey, you know, two or three years ago. Um, we're looking for people who, you know, are open, who are willing to take feedback and are some, to some degree coachable, but also have a strong and dynamic enough personality where, you know, when it's time to hold their ground, uh, he or she'll do that uh, effectively. When I think of what investors I seek out or have learned to seek out in the process of this, uh, obviously industry experience is incredible. So some of my investors include the founder, one of the founders of JetBlue, uh, the former chairman of Orbitz, and just being able to call up these guys and run scenarios through them, run partnership ideas by them has been so incredibly valuable. Um, I find a lot of entrepreneurs don't take advantage of their investors nearly as much. And it, and it took me a long time to realize that obviously they're invested in you quite literally, but they, um, you know, they are there to pick up the phone and in general, uh, you know, I have a bit of an independent streak. Oh, I have to figure this out for myself. Um, and especially when the going gets tough, you think, oh, I, I don't want to admit to my investor that something's going wrong because I don't want him to freak out. Always, every single time when I have actually talked to my investor, investors, they've always had, they've been completely understanding when things were going wrong, as they inevitably do. And they've said, oh, you know, I've been in that situation. Or I know someone who's been in that situation. Don't freak out about this. I knew the risks when I was coming into this. Uh, and they've turned around. So that's been really nice to also have professional investors. I, I have, I've also had some investors who, um, when I try and uh, ask them for advice on things that are going wrong, uh, can be more of a liability, but that's, you know, that's the exception more than the rule. Um, but obviously, so seeking out people with industry connections, I also find, and I've heard this from a number of other founder friends, seeking out younger venture firms. I mean, obviously it would be a dream to work with a Sequoia or one of the, the you know, the top 10 blue chip firms, 
But also, um, you know, aside from that, seeking out younger firms where they're in their first or second fund and they're really looking to prove something, they're generally going to be a lot more receptive and a lot more uh, invested in making sure that you're successful because it's such a large part of the signal about their own prospects. So um, that's been something that I've seen work out really well for some of my other founder friends. I think I think that last point's an important one. I, mm-hmm. I think there is a, um, a a distinct benefit. I'm not trying to be self-serving here, but uh, a distinct <laughs> benefit to, to to founders seeking out early venture firms because the most valuable thing that you can get from a good investor is time. Right? Investors all give you capital, but what differentiates those investors is are the ones who spend the time to create the value if even just being a sounding board. And sometimes with the big firms, it's hard to do because they have so many other commitments. I'd like to, I mean, what we just talked about peels peels back a couple layers, right? We're talking about um, seeking somebody out, identifying one, what would make the most strategic business uh, sense for the business. Um, But also that they have to be somebody that we can get along with and we have access to and that we'll commit time to it. This is getting pretty, pretty granular. And I think for a lot of founders early on, they end up taking what makes uh, the most sense or is most accessible for that first round because they might not necessarily have that strategic lined up or they might not necessarily have the traction necessary to to get that person to invest in them. Um, so they end up taking like dumb money or as, as some would call it, right? <laughs> um, dumb money, smart money means uh, strategic versus non-strategic money typically. Um so I'd be curious, maybe Bess, on your perspective, and, and Tom, um, has there been anybody who's who's taken dumb money, had it in their cap table, and that's affected your decision to invest in that company? Yeah, I mean, I think as a, a strategic investor, we're really aware of that, as and especially as being a fairly new fund. We're a little bit over two years old. Um, and in the corporate venture space, it's kind of an uphill battle um, in that people, fellow investors, will assume the worst because there's a lot of peop- a lot of funds out there who don't do corporate venture right, who start an arm and they say, okay, now we're innovative. We have uh, we have an um, innovation arm. Um, so it took us a while to kind of build our reputation um, where. Other other investors and really strong startups were excited to take our money because they knew that we would be adding value both both as strategic investors um, with you know giving that kind of advice, being there for them in person, um, but then also being a customer, right? Bringing our our investments back into our parent company, which is really where we're able to add a lot of value. Um, so we have invested quite a lot with other strategics. Um, we've co-invested with Intel and a few others. But certainly at the get-go, we looked to invest with with private funds um, just because we were looking to get that legitimacy of we're not another kind of vanity project um, corporate venture arm. Yeah, I think you know you got to differentiate between dumb and passive money. Yep. Um, Dumb money is a little bit hard to hard to spot in early stage companies because dumb money manifests itself usually in you know outsized valuations relative to where the business is or poorly negotiated terms. Where you can get in trouble is dumb money that's a lead. 
Um, passive money is part of any cap table, right? I mean, there are going to be people who aren't going to be able to add material value, but you know, like the business and are going to throw in. Um, I think where, again, dumb money becomes damaging is when you get into later rounds and because of something in the cap formation strategy that they did in the earlier rounds, largely due to you know, a dumb money demand, that causes friction for a larger institutional VC to come in. And so it either costs time and money to clean up or they just don't come in at all. The other place where dumb money can be very damaging is if you have a, a overly aggressive investor who is not being helpful, but also not being passive. Um, so putting artificial pressure on, you know, metrics or, um, you know, trying to create some liquidity or things like that, anything that serves as a distraction to the founder that's not really relevant to that particular point in the business is is damaging dumb money. So I'd actually like to spring off that point and ask Jillian, we've been been touching a lot on the value of specific investors, people who are strategic, passive money. And I'm curious from your perspective, where raising certain rounds has become an end in, in and of itself for a lot of companies these days. Do you have any words of caution for people going through this process or challenges you faced or where you've said, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have taken that money or maybe I should have, but this is something that I'm facing with XYZ investor. It's interesting. So after our angel money, we haven't taken, uh, we never did a big venture round. And that's something that has always weighed on me. I don't have the right answer, whether that was definitively the right or wrong thing to do. We, um, you know, we've had certain offers at certain times. Um, and what that's obviously preserved is we have a lot more ownership and independence. And I have seen, you know, we've been around for more than five years now. And uh, obviously, some of my peers who raise money around the same time have, you know, been on these rocket ship rides. But the vast majority of my friends who raised large rounds have uh, have cycled out. So their companies uh, were pressured to grow really fast and uh, have ultimately not been able to raise money, have gone out of business, have gone bankrupt. Um, so it puts huge pressure on. And I do also see a lot of uh, companies which have managed to continue to raise on metrics that are that really don't make any sense for the valuations that they're getting. And in the uh, upcoming correction, whenever it happens, which everyone's been expecting to happen for a few years, I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of businesses burn out. Um, and Hitlist, because it hasn't raised as much money, has been forced to actually make a little bit more money. And so in a downturn, I think we're a little bit more preserved uh, compared to these companies that need to keep on raising venture capital and, and burning it up. Um, so, you know, again, you know, the jury is out until we have that correction or until, you know, Hitlist is so massively successful that I can say that we made absolutely the right decision. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, I'm happy with where we are. So no cautionary tales. I mean, so many cautionary tales. <laughs> Please, tell us. <laughs> uh, I mean, most of them aren't mine to tell. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll have a think on it. I'll, yeah. <laughs> well, what are some of the things, um, you know, there's a lot of trends in the travel industry, um, markets to pay attention to, technology that's available now. Um, what are some of the things that, that you guys want to see in the market um, that you see opportunity for? What should founders be looking to? 
this is going to sound enormously dull relative to all the opportunity in the industry, but I think it's a surprisingly big one. Um, the uh, transaction reconciliation and commission settlement in the hotel business is one of the most antiquated sectors uh, in the entire industry. And the sheer transactional volume and the players involved in that particular ecosystem are huge. And I think blockchain represents a really, really interesting disruptive technology that can turn that whole part of the industry on its ear. And I am dying for someone to get in that business. So if you're in it or you're thinking about getting in it, please call me. I'm interested in following up on one more thing we were talking about earlier, which is the economic downturn that everyone's saying is coming. <laughs> how, how do you guys think, as both investors and founders, this will affect our space um, since leisure travel is so massive, business travel is massive, and, and, and the impending doom that is apparently coming would affect both. Um, how do you both kind of foolproof your, your startup, um, and how are you thinking about that as an investor? Well, the obvious thing would be to get money in the bank now. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, you look at some of the companies that weathered the latest, the, the last downturn, and you could say that it's because of the brilliance of their business process. But if you really look at the data, it's usually the company that managed to get fifty million dollars in the bank right before the crash happened, or five hundred million dollars in the bank, whatever you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, raise money while the environment is good would be a, a fairly standard one. But I mean, travel is hyper cyclical. When it's up, it's really up. And, and in, in a downturn, it crashes. And that's why most didn't basically every single major airline go bankrupt after 9-11 and or the last financial crisis. Yeah. We, were, yeah. we were founded one month before 9-11. Yeah. But we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Jillian 100%. It's about if you, if you can raise money right now, even on you know, what you might consider mediocre terms relative to the market, do that. That would be the message to founders. Also, revisit your rigor in being capital efficient. Um, that's going to be important. And something that Jillian said earlier about her own business, which I think is spot on, is work harder to, to create a profitable business um, because that will alleviate the pressure on you during a market downturn. From an investment perspective, and curious to hear what Bess's thoughts are on this, that, that they're thinking about JetBlue. But, um, you know, the way we look at this is that, you know, it, it'll be good in some respects and that valuations will come down, right? So it'll be a little yeah. bit more investor friendly and they've gotten a little high over the last few years. Secondly, we figure that seeding businesses now, assuming that the cycles for realization uh, on a liquidity event are going to probably stay at seven to, to 10 years, maybe longer. Um, the timing is actually good to be seeding businesses, um, provided that those businesses um, have, uh, I guess, not priced in per se, but taken into consideration what a market downturn would do to their ability to gain traction through the seed stage. Um, we have some investments in the meetings and events space that has been a space that has traditionally gotten hammered during economic downturns. And so we've certainly had those conversations with those companies about what that will look like. But we kind of take a step back and say, even if there is, a, I think it was 35% uh, in 2008, redu reduction in corporate event spending, um, how will that really affect the company at seed stage in terms of their ability to gain traction with their customers? And we think that, you know, seed stage, the impact will be less than for later stage companies. 
I agree. And I, and I think it's quite interesting with our space. And I, I kind of urge our portfolio companies to look at cost savings, too. There's so many inefficiencies today in the travel space. If you can kind of spin your startup or even build out capabilities, if it's a B2B startup, to be cost-saving or even B2C, then that actually could benefit um, if things do go the way people are saying they will. Awesome. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, uh, we will get into questions and answers. Q&A. Thanks. everybody, this is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Welcome back to Mouth Media Live and Travel is Your Business at Experience by an Hotel. Uh, we're getting into uh, the Q&A portion of our show today with Tom and Jillian. So what do you got for us? Hi, I'm uh, Jod Reddick. I do a fair amount of angel investing and also launching a blockchain-based business to significantly reduce the cost of international telephone mobile roaming, which is insane. Um, my question is, from an investment perspective, what is unique about the travel industry compared to every other industry one might invest in? That's a very well-worded question. Um, <laughs> what's unique about it? Um, I was just going to say the number of headaches. Uh, again, I think, I think the sheer size and magnitude of the industry, there are so many different parts of it. There are so many um, different players in the ecosystem uh, and there are so many different problems you can solve from multiple angles. Um, but I think perhaps one of the biggest differences is this is this kind of uh, dichotomy of, of leisure travel versus corporate and how fundamentally different the dynamics of each part of the industry really are. Uh, and we saw the, the leisure industry lead the innovation uh, wave of, of the late 90s and the 2000s, and then that give way really to to the same type of thing on the corporate side, which I would say has not gone as well um, in, you know, 2010 into 2011, all the way through to today. Uh, I'll also add, it's a highly operational business versus others that you can look at, um, you know, as an angel that I'm sure you've seen. We are so highly dependent on the weather, right? If a storm comes, it completely knocks out our business and everyone is on their feet trying to solve for that to get those planes up and running again. Um, so that is a huge barrier to innovation because there's such a focus on the operation. And I think the same, would, same could be said for hospitality. Just one last thing. I think the... Uh total amount of travel transactions that happen online right now are 
under 30%, maybe even less than 10% of travel transactions worldwide. There's still a remarkable segment that happens through offline travel agencies, especially in the developing world. I think in the U.S. we're closer to 50%. But if you just look at that, that's just a tremendous amount. If the, the industry is already as large as it is, as we've talked about earlier on this podcast, and you know somewhere between... Uh, 90 to 70% of it still needs to come online. There are going to be a lot of efficiencies to be captured there. Just one, one other thing, and I'm curious if you guys all feel this way. For such an enormous industry, it is. it feels like the community is surprisingly small. Like when you get into That's this true. industry, everybody knows one another. And it's it's really amazing. You go to the 72 conferences a year and see all the same people. So, and I think that's actually a good thing. It's just kind of a big, crazy family. Yeah. I would add that um, maybe to answer your question also from a, a fundraising perspective, for the, for the founders in Voyager, there's two main things that they really need when they're looking for venture capital, or not even when they're looking, when they're just starting the company, and why it's so unique for them to be raising. Um is that they really do need dynamic partnerships, uh, generally right up front, because uh, they have to interplay with the inventory that exists within the industry. Uh, there's you know only so many seats on an airline, there's only so many hotel beds, and there's only um, so many ways to actually plug into that. Um, and there's a bunch of workarounds that people figure out, but inevitably uh, you do need strategic relationships. And, um, and then what many uh, were just saying, it's an extremely uh, capital-intensive uh, industry, so it's a lot harder when you see that the margins can be lower up front. So I think that's why it's so unique trying to raise capital um, as a, a travel tech startup. My name is Kafir Subin. I work as a data analyst and aud in auditing. And uh, my question is as such... Uh, the travel industry has changed dramatically, obviously, in the last five years, in the last 15 years. Uh, as you mentioned, 9-11 affected that. My question in particular is, how do all these low-cost carriers uh, affect the travel industry and the trend it's going into? Uh, the low-cost carriers have uh, made it possible for a swath of society to travel um, that hasn't been. And this isn't new in the industry. It basically, just as we've said, uh, travel is hyper-cyclical, and you tend to get this new crop of low-cost carriers coming in right towards the peak of every economic bubble, and then most of them go out of business. Um, but for a brief golden period, uh, you know, people can fly to Europe round trip for $250. That's something that's getting people to get their passport for the first time. Um, we've seen uh, the average price of tickets booked on hit list fly, uh, fall from 450 to 350 in the last two years. Um, and that might reflect partially a changing demographic of our user base, but I think it's also just, um, you know, we, we have a survey of airfares, average airfares over the last uh, four years, five years, um, and it's categorically lower. And I think that's a great thing. I think it gets more people traveling and hopefully in the habit of doing that more often. Yeah, and I think from an airline perspective, we see those customers who, who choose to book on those super low-cost fares with um, what I would say is, is a low-cost experience to match, we don't see that as disrupting our business. We see that as a totally new market, as Jillian was saying. People who actually wouldn't fly otherwise, who then will maybe eventually fly, want to have more premium experience, and then come to us. So... 
yeah, we, we, we don't see it as something that's good, That's an issue. More competition is always better for the consumer. So <laughs> when there's more competition, more people will buy tickets, more people will fly. And what's interesting, and I, I think, you know, Neilman's coming out with a, with a yes. new one. Uh, and, you know, in, in talking to, uh, to his partner, you know, the, the strategy around some of these new airlines is very interesting. These are not, you know, kind of fly by the seat of your pants, you know, business models. These are very well thought out. And one of the most interesting things I find about them is how they um, utilize typically underserved airports relative to the density around those airports. Um, and I think that's a that's a good thing, not only for generating more travel, but also for general economic stimulus in some of those markets. So I'm actually excited to see what uh, what Moxie does. So my name is Andrew, and I'm come from a small country in Europe that's called Albania, and it's a, a small past communist country that has a lot to offer in case of a uh, ancient history. Um, as well as totalitarian communist you know, history. And the question is, how do you bring that forth and how do you make that um, feasible for uh, US tourists to go and visit? It's a, it's a great country and what it has for itself is uh, it's very cheap to travel and uh, lodging and food and everything else is very cheap and it's, it's a completely different experience than You'd have to you would have you would experience in any European country as well as uh, anywhere else in the world. It's very unique, and uh, and I come from that country, like I said. And I'd like to see you know what what would you think? How do you bring that to uh, the U.S. consumer's attention? Uh, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, probably the, I've spent a lot more time than I care to admit in kind of the travel agency and the TMC market. So I, I think first and foremost, a lot of these efforts are going to start with a government sponsored tourism board. And then you're probably looking at a three prong approach of a lot of advertising uh, and that could be hyper local. I know there's a large Albanian community in New York. Um, you know, uh, so advertising, um, I think you try and get uh, as much of the travel agency population over there on the fam trips so that they become familiarized with the product and what the destination has to offer, and then they can market it through to their clients. And then probably, uh, you know, last but not least, um, you know, creating some interesting, you know, probably packaged opportunities uh, that you can market online or offline. Um, but the key is, you know, you got to build a groundswell and you got to get people talking about it. And, you know, what a beautiful place it is. And I went there and it's fantastic. And, uh, and then, you know, do a more distributed channel strategy from there. A fun case study would probably be Iceland um, and how they incentivize tourism there. Um, but I think, um, yeah, thank you for that question. I'd love to hear any final thoughts that you guys would like to share with the audience here, with the listener could be a reflection on this interview or our conversation or your experiences overall. One thing that you started and I think we left aside was the idea of what to invest in next or what, what's going to happen next. And I, obviously the, the models that have 
made the most splash over the last 10 years are things that people that no one thought could really work, like Airbnb, having strangers stay in your home. So I'm always intrigued when I see something that seems really unusual and really uh, unlikely. Um, I, I think the idea of sort of um, luggage is a real pain. So the idea of uh, renting clothes or something like this. If you think about underutilized opportunities, um, you know, new approaches to space, like what Notel is doing here, um, and being more modular and being able to change the character of a space from retail to uh, office to residential very easily. Um, I, I think those are some areas that might be interesting in the future. Oh, also, I think when we get self-driving cars um, you're going to see the most profitable air, some of the most profitable airline routes in the U.S. become uh, infeasible because if you have fast self-driving cars, uh, it just makes much more sense from Boston to New York, New York to D.C., and San Francisco to L.A., which are the three most profitable routes in the U.S., um, I think will be undercut, and I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, I agree. I, I think mobility is going to be a big focus for the next... 10, 15 years. Um, love the luggage thing, by the way. Um, we work with a company called Duffel, which is a really interesting, interesting business, uh, which, which I've used as a, as a business traveler. It's great. This has been fantastic. Thank you. I, my, my message to everyone out there, if you're a founder, um, you know, keep going. Don't get discouraged by some of the hurdles that this industry puts in front of you, whether it be from large incumbent uh, technology providers that make it very difficult to do things to um, you know, maybe slow moving raises. You're not alone. Um, keep innovating. This industry needs it uh, across a lot of aspects of it. And to investors, you know, both people who have invested into the industry and or interested in investing in the industry, um, you know, don't be afraid to continue to deploy capital. Right? It's just what kind of investor are you, and how are you trying to deploy your money? What are you looking for? Um, but I cannot state enough how important it is that you find the business that you're going to invest in interesting and that you like the people who are running it. Follow those two things. Good things tend to happen. Great. And uh, how could somebody get in touch with the work you guys are doing or however you'd like to make yourself available? Uh, sure. Uh, email is uh, sparico at brand new matter. Send me an email, S-P-A-R-I-C-O at brand new matter. Uh, easy enough. Um, uh, you know, readily available, love having conversations with founders. So uh, feel free. And obviously download HitList and we're available <laughs> on, uh, on iOS and Android. And I am easiest to get a hold of through Twitter. So I'm Jillian with a G, G-I-L-L-I-A-N-I-M at Twitter. Awesome. Thank you again, guys, both for being here. Uh, for my co-host, Bess Chapman. Happy trails. And Brandon McKenzie. Thanks, guys. I'm John Madsen. Bon voyage. This has been Travel Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at travelisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Travel Biz Show. That's Travel B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, travelisyourbusiness.com. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.